Here is a humility test. You ready for the test? Here's a humility test. Do it in your own heart. Does it bother you if someone else gets praise for something that you invested your time into? Does it bother you if someone else gets the credit for something that you initiated? Does it bother you if you don't get to have your initials stamped at the end of the essay, the assignment, the task, completing something as a chore? Does it bother you? If it bothers you, then you may just be failing the humility test. But if it doesn't matter to you who gets the credit as long as God gets the glory, then you are walking in the pathway of humility for the kingdom of God. Jesus, amen. Jesus draws a child to himself to illustrate this point. And I I love how how this this dialogue elaborates because Jesus is talking about the, the precious humility and innocence of a child. And then he goes in and he says, you know what, actually, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to be willing, and this is my paraphrase, to be a water boy for Jesus or a water girl for Jesus. Isn't that what he said? If you even give someone, offer them a drink of water in my name, he said, you'll not lose your reward. And I took that real literal years ago. I was just teaching a Bible class in my, my local church and I was zealous for the Lord and, and I just felt that there might be a call of God in my life. I was still searching that out. And I noticed that oftentimes in the middle of the message, the pastor would start looking for something to drink and there was no water around. And I thought, you know what? I'm gonna solve that next week. And I took it upon myself to make sure that there was always a bottle of water, a glass of water at his podium. Because, you know, that clearing of the throat when you're speaking, it's really tough for the hearers, isn't it? You know, it's kind of uncomfortable. So I wanted to make sure that he always had a bottle of water. And it occurred to me when I read the passage that I was doing something biblical, giving someone a bottle of water, giving someone a drink of water in Jesus' name is biblical. It is an act of service to someone else. That's why when I host people sometimes during the week or I have someone come into my office, I'll always offer them a bottle of water or a cup of coffee. Listen, if you're ever in my office, don't turn me down on my bottle of water offer. Don't be stealing my blessing. Uh-uh. No. If I offer you a drink of water, you say, I, you don't even say I've already had one. Just say, yes, I'll take it. Thank you. Because I don't want to lose out on my reward. But what is serving? Serving is humility. It is saying I'm passing the test because I may not have gotten the credit that I thought I was due, but that's okay because God still gets the glory and that's what matters most. Jesus teaches humility by looking at a child. And what do we think about children? Children need to be taught certain things. Can I tell you one of the things children need to be taught? They need to be taught prejudice because naturally children don't have prejudice. They don't see the way we see. You can take kids of all ages, different skin colors, different ethnicities. You put them in a play area with balls and little, little things, that, you know, activities to do, and they'll play and they'll intermingle. They don't have any problem with skin color or height or the way that someone looks or anything like that. But we teach them, we train them through our actions. See, what you're teaching your kids and what you're training them are two different things. Because what you teach them is what, basically what you say, but what you do is what they learn. How you respond is how they respond. We have to teach children prejudice. But selfishness, now that comes all by itself, doesn't it? Selfishness comes just out of human nature. 
It won't be too long before you take a, a room of children and you have different play activities that one of them will decide they want all of the balls. They want all of the crayons. They want all of the markers, right? Selfishness is innate. And so we have to teach humility, but we can do that so much easier with children because they're innocent, because they're precious, because there is a purity about a child that has been untainted to this point where they're not jaded by life. They haven't been disappointed by other people yet to the point where they just start writing people off. They go into a shell. They just say, you know what? I've been hurt before. I'm never going to be hurt again. I'm not going back to a place like that. And that's where a lot of people find themselves today in church world is that they have been hurt by church people and they say the church hurt them. Well, a member of the church probably did, but the church didn't hurt them. Jesus didn't hurt them. You know, Gandhi is said to be a great spiritual leader and a man of peace in the world. And Gandhi had this amazing quote, very intellectual, very learned man. He said this one time, which has stuck with me as I've rehearsed this in my ears. He said, I've read about Christ and I have watched Christians, but your Christians don't act a lot like the Christ I read about. Your Christians don't often act like the Christ they proclaim. Therefore, he was not persuaded by the cause of Christ. As a Christian, you are a Christ-like one. You are an example. You are an ambassador to the world. And Jesus illustrates with this child the tender purity, the unabated desire to please, to be part, to include, to not miss out on any fun and any desirable thing. This is all markers of children. Jesus brings the child as an example. To be great in the kingdom of God, the next thing that we see in this text is that we cannot compete. Hear me, we cannot compete in the kingdom of God. Look, look at John, it says, now John, he's the beloved. He's probably the favorite. Most people knew John was probably the favorite. Now John answered him saying, teacher, we saw someone who does not Follow us, casting out demons in your name, and we forbid him because he does not follow us. Now, John was a type A personality. He was an Enneagram one. John was a perfectionist. John was this one that, that he was going to make sure that people toe the line. He was a rule follower, right? John was going to make sure that nobody got out of line when it came to the things of his Lord, his friend Jesus. And he said, we saw some guy casting out demons and we told him, you can't do that because you don't follow us. And what was Jesus' res response? This is, this is key. This is this amazing. Jesus said, no, if they're not against us, then they're on our side. Don't forbid them. They, they, hey, they're doing a good work for God. Don't forbid them. Let it happen. Let them do it. Stop competing. Competition can be good in some areas of life. In sports, competitiveness is great. It's fun to be competitive in sports. I mean, if there was never a time clock or a score, then we're just having practice, right? Competitiveness is okay in sports. Competitiveness is okay in business. Some of you, I look out and I know that you're business owners, you're, you're, you're working the, the, the corporate ladder or you're, 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 you're achieving high results and, and, and excelling in your job. And there has to be a little competitiveness there. You have to have a little bit of grit, a little determination, or you'll never get noticed. And that's okay. 
Being competitive in the workforce actually helps you to be able to provide for your family, to get promotions. Just don't let that get out of hand. But competitiveness in so many areas is fine. But one area that competition does not fit is the kingdom of God. We cannot allow ourselves to compete with ourselves or compare ourselves with each other. Paul the apostle said, we become unwise when we compare ourselves with ourselves, with one another, in other words. When we say, well, I'm not as spiritual as her. I don't pray like she does. I wish that I could really open up the word and expound it like he does. No, we don't compare. We're not competing. But what's happened in our Western mindset and probably in the last 200 years in North American Christianity is that we have this church industrial complex. Maybe maybe you've not heard of the church industrial complex, but this is a notion that bigger is always better. It's an American dream kind of mindset. Bigger is better. Now, hear me. There's nothing wrong with big churches. Big ministries can do things that small ministries can't, but small ministries can activate and do things that big ministries can't. So it's not a matter of being bigger or smaller. It's not a matter of that. But the church industrial complex is built around this mindset that more is better, always more. And and it's always like an attractiveness to to learn the newest hype and the newest things and to to do the next thing so that you can attract more people. And I am all about attracting people for Jesus. But listen, if we have to compete against one another in order to get the same sheep in the pen, then something's wrong about this picture. We have entered into a competitiveness of We have a bigger gymnasium. We have a a better youth group. We have a a swimming pool at our church, whatever it is. You know, I don't know what it is, but there is this, this mindset that we need to compete. The only competition that should be happening is how are you as a follower of Jesus today versus how were you as a follower of Jesus yesterday? The Bible says for us to examine ourselves when we partake of the Holy Communion. We don't examine our neighbor We don't tell somebody else, well, you've got three things that you did wrong this week. No, examine yourself. Take a personal inventory. Each one examine their own heart. Jesus Jesus basically told his disciples, leave them alone. Knock it off, guys. Who cares what they're doing? It doesn't matter what they're doing across town or in the next city or miles away. It doesn't matter. As long as we're doing it in the name of Jesus, he said, it's okay. That's all right by him. And then this next section, to be great for God requires personal sacrifice. Somebody say personal sacrifice. Mark 9 and 42 says, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble. Now, Jesus is using a child as an example, but he's also referencing a young believer, someone who has just come to the faith. This is a a parallel reference here. It would be better for him if he had a millstone hung around his neck and were thrown into the sea. The millstone is this large grinding stone that a donkey would grind around a mill. It's, It's not some little thing that you would need bread out with. This is a large stone that if it were attached to your neck and thrown into the sea, you're drowning. Like there's no hope with a millstone around your neck. But that's what Jesus said. If your hand calls you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into fire that shall never be quenched where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot calls you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two feet to be cast into hell into fire that shall not be quenched where the worm does not die nor the fire is quenched. And if your eye calls you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two to be cast into hell fire. Wow. 
Somebody say, wow. wow. That's a strong statement. Those, those are tough words to, to swallow. But these are the words of Jesus. And so there, there's a, a, a double illustration here for us. That this life is not the only life that there is. That if we live like everything in this life is all that matters, then we neglect our eternity. We, at, we neglect the future. And I still believe that there is a heaven to gain and a hell to shun. And Jesus teaches this principle, but there is also something in this principle that, that we need to take literarily and not literally. Hear me. The Bible is not only read literally, but literarily. <laughs> because if this were to be read literally, I would not be able to read it and both my eyes would be gone. I wouldn't have either hands and my feet would be cut off by now. And I doubt that you would have had a very easy time getting in this building yourself with no hands, no feet, and no eyes, right? So we don't take this literally, but Jesus is using a hyperbole in, in how that we are to rid ourselves of anything that would stop us from entering the kingdom of God because the outcome of not allowing that thing to be cut off of our life, he uses body parts as an illustration, but it can be anything. It could be pride of life. It can be the, the desire, lust of the flesh. It can be uh, the, the eyes that, that never are filled with enough thing. It, it can be anything, whatever it is that we're putting up as an idol in our lives. Now, when I say idol, we usually think of a little carven statue or a, a stone figurine that's sitting on a mantle. That, that's not an idol. That's not an idol. Idols are not bad things. Idols are good things made the ultimate thing. Did you get that? We think of idols, although those are bad things. No, we by human nature are idol worshipers. We take good things and we make them the ultimate thing. There's nothing wrong with fishing, with going to the ball game, with having money, with having multiple homes and cars and lands. There's nothing wrong with any of that. But if that becomes your primary focus and your, your uh, pursuit above and beyond every other thing in life, those have become idols. Are they bad things? No, not enough themselves. They can be used to expand the kingdom of God, in fact. But if all we do is live this life for the material possessions, now those things have become idols. Those good things have become idols. And here's what Jesus is saying. You would be better cutting those things off from your life and enter into true life, the abundant life. See, eternal life for the believer starts at the moment that they say yes to Jesus. He said that he would give us abundant life now and eternal life hereafter, okay? Are you living the abundant life or are you just barely squeaking by? Because if you're not living the abundant life in Jesus, and I'm not talking about material success, but I'm talking about being able to pillow your head at night and have peaceful nights rest without being tormented with night terrors and dreams and, and bad things that are about to happen to you. See, the abundant life says, whether I live, it's Christ, and if I die, it's gain. So what can this world do to me? I belong to Jesus. That's abundant life. Abundant life is saying, I don't care who gets the credit as long as God gets the glory. It's a humility of God is all about this world. He wants to see as many people saved. It is his will that none should perish, but all should come to the knowledge of the truth. That's God's will. How does he operate that will through me and you? He uses us as ambassadors for him. So Jesus references back again to a child or one young in the faith, ridding themselves of everything. And number four, to be great in the kingdom of God, my relationships must be tested. 
Look at verse 49 and 50. It says, for everyone will be seasoned with fire. What? Yeah, that means you. That means your neighbor. That means everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but what? But if the salt loses its flavor, how will it season? Have salt in yourselves and peace with one another. This is relationships. Say one another. That means it's more than just you. There are relationships here. And Jesus is talking about this purification, this purging that happens. Perhaps the greatest test in this life will come through your personal relationships and how you respond to the people closest to you. You know, it's real easy to love somebody from afar, a person on a magazine cover, the person that is on the television that you admire. You know, they they often tell you, don't get too close to your heroes, the people that you put on a pedestal, because you'll quickly find that they're human just like you. Don't be putting Pastor Joe up on a pedestal Monday through Saturday. On Sunday, I have to stand up here. I'm called by God to do it. But listen, I put my shoes on the same way you do. Well, maybe not the exact same way. I, I learned that one guy, he puts his socks on before he puts his pants on. Who does that? What? What? So I might not put my pants on exactly the way you do. But be careful of putting people up on a pedestal because they're just human. And when they fail, when they falter, when they slip, when they stumble, if you also lose your faith because they stumbled, then your faith was in man and not in God. Don't put your faith in man. Man will disappoint. It's okay to have admiration. It's okay to to, to respect someone, but don't put your faith in them because your relationships will be tested. And how you deal with and respond to people closest to you is a major marker in how that you're going to expand in the kingdom of God. See, Western culture has invented something that we've called urban sprawl or suburban society. Western culture created this. If you go back over 200 years, you'll see that by and large, other than maybe a a large city, most communities were small kind of tribal communal uh, towns, villages. People rarely ever traveled more than five or 10 miles beyond the place where they were born. And so what that meant was that if there was a schism, if there was a, a falling out, if there was something that you had as a division between someone, you weren't able to just simply pack up your, your tent and go to the next town. You had to stay there and work it out. But we now live in a day and age, we have all the modern conveniences, all the blessings of, of this great US of A, and we have urban sprawl, and you can get in your car, and you can drive 15 to 20 minutes, and you can be in an entirely different town with a whole new cast of characters, with different people, new schools, new churches, new jobs, and you can just have a fresh start. And everything there will be much better than it was here. Because the grass looks so green over there. But the problem, as Yogi Berra said, wherever I go, there I am. And if you leave one season wrong, you're going to enter the next season the same exact way. And so it's not about cutting and running. It's not about just replacing this friend group with a new friend group. It's not about just, well, I don't like this church anymore. I'm not being fed there anymore. How much self-feeding are you doing? Listen, if the only time you eat on, uh, spiritually is when the pastor preaches on Sunday, you're going to be malnourished. 
Don't, don't rely on this worship team to lead you into worship. You should be ready to usher them and, and nudge them and be like, come on, guys, we're going somewhere. You, you should be at a, a spiritual place that, that this is just icing on top for your week. This is just a kickstart. This is a joke. This is coming together anyway and fellowshipping with fellow saints. That's what this is. We've invented a, a, a system like this where one person stands up and talks to everybody else in rows. You know, truly, biblical first century Christianity was not done in rows. It was done in circles. They met home to home, breaking bread and fellowshipping one with another. That's what they did. And that's okay. And I'm not trying to work myself out of a job here or nothing. Come on, keep coming on Sundays. It's great. Sit in the rows. But if you never find yourself getting into a circle, then you're missing out on some of the best fellowship that you can have in the body of Christ. Amen. Somebody needs your testimony. And you might just be surprised that someone has gone through something that can share and shine light on what you're going through. So we need to get in circles. We need to let our relationships be tested before we just cut and run and go to the next thing. We need to allow the spirit of God to test our relationships because it says that everyone will be seasoned with fire. Now fire does two things. If they'll come, I'll close with this. Fire does two things. Whatever it's immersed in, number one, it purifies. Therefore, there are some things that can no longer stay in your life when the fire touches it. That means it gets changed from one form to another. Your zeal and your passion becomes for righteous causes. Your motives get purified. I, I can tell you many times people have come and they've said, you know, pastor, I came to the church so that I could network, so that I could, I could add more people to my mailing list for my, my job. But you know what? There's something that got a hold of me when I got in there and I needed that fellowship more than I needed the names on the list. And that's because the fire of God touched and purified the motives. The other thing that fire does is that it destroys. Something left in the fire long enough will be consumed. In other words, there are things in your life, things of your past, maybe strongholds of your mind, that when exposed to the all-consuming fire of God, they can no longer stay strongholds in your mind. There are some things that are habits and addictions and vices and hangups that can no longer stay attached to your life when you've been exposed to the fire of God. You get set free by the power of his spirit. And this is the all-consuming fire of God that must test every person. It is a life in the fire. So earlier I asked you this, do you want to be great in life? Reality is, by the world's terms, most of us will not achieve greatness the way the world would recognize greatness. But I have good news for you. That if you will place Jesus as the center of your life, you may never be great in life, but Jesus can give you a great life. And so if you want a great life, heads bowed and no one looking around. This is between you and God. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand or come up here, but I do want you, even if you just have to wiggle your little toe, to acknowledge before God in some way that you want Jesus to be at the center of your life. We've already given the altar call today. We've already surrendered. We've sung about it, but maybe we held back a little. Maybe someone didn't take that step of faith and they want to today. And this is your opportunity as we pray that you ask Jesus if he will show you what it means 
to have a great life in him. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word is living and powerful. It's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces as it goes in, and when it comes out, it heals. We thank you. You have given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. And God, we want to have a great life. And we know that that only comes through putting Jesus at the center of everything that we do. God, test our relationships. Test our humility. We want to walk in your kingdom. We don't want the alternative. A life that is outside of the gates, weeping and gnashing of teeth. We want to be close to your presence. Mercy and grace is available today. We receive your mercy, Lord. We receive your grace. It's in Jesus' name. Everyone says, amen.